It's like I have a friend who's talking about how the real freedom is commitment. Uh, hmm. I, for me, I was like, no commitment, that's freedom. And then turns out too much freedom is just anxiety. Um, a friend shared it really nicely. He's like, anxiety is a dizziness of freedom. Like too much freedom. Obviously you get anxious because it's like, I could do anything. Yeah. Um, whereas if like you have a plan, even if you deviate from the plan, you know the plan's there. Welcome back to I'm the Villain. Um, in this episode, we're going to continue our conversation that we had in last week's episode with my friend Rozzy talking about concussions and how that really changed his worldview and all of that. So if you missed it, um, you can go back and get the first part of our conversation there. Otherwise, we'll just jump into it. And how did you physically like survive? Like, how did you feed yourself if you couldn't like, you know, right? Yeah. Um, so that's great because one of the things that happened is I became way more sensitive to food too. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden it was like, previously I could like eat ice cream. I'd like eat sometimes like a pint of ice cream on the way home. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Just like pick them up and by the time I got home it was empty. And I was like, oh, <laughs> nice. Like, um, <laughs> um, and pretty quickly I learned like, if I do that now, I'll get this crazy inflammation in the back of my neck that causes a really bad headache. Mm. It's like before I wow. finished the, the, the bread that I started to eat, like I have a headache. And so I had to really cut down the kinds of food that I was eating because so much food I was hypersensitive to. Mm. Uh, and so my diet became, um, so I was blessed with Amazon Prime or like whatever mm. the food delivery was they called it um in san francisco and so i just basically cut my diet to like rice coconut rice like like a coconut milk rice avocado spinach beef and eggs and bananas so it was like bananas avocados beef eggs rice and coconut these were like my six ingredients Mm -hmm. and maybe chocolate but chocolate was an interesting thing that we can get into Mm. so it was I had to I really cut like that was kind of all I ate for months you know um, yeah and there was some degree of, of um, expanding my diet but to some degree I, that's kind of still how I eat like I eat crazy stuff I'll, you know like sweets and stuff I get into because I just it's like a habit you know of like my feelings um oh and sweet potato yeah i think it's important to have two carbs i've learned a lot about food <laughs> um i think we all eat like way too complex to be honest diets mm-hmm. um but also probably too simple depending on how you eat um i think two carbs are great so like rice and potato or whatever is like your carb choices that you can so you don't get bored you know because you're gonna get bored of the one mm-hmm. it just happens on a biological level the protein and fats. So I was super high performing in my head, at least athlete. So I cared a lot about my performance and my body. And so all of a sudden I needed a body suit that could work. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the concussion is like, yeah, it just completely changed the way like your body interfaced with like every stimuli that it ever got. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, I'm kind of still in that process. Because I think I got to a point where it was like, I began to notice the way I was interacting with people. Oh, sorry. So there's a a, a piece of prelude that could be supportive, which is that um, Western, like, you know, UCSF neurology director, I ended up meeting, I climbed my way to the kind of the top of the, the Western medical hierarchy that was available in San Francisco after meeting some crazy neuropsychologist who just like super traumatized me by like, like literally it was like, let's give you crazy light stimuli to the eyes, like crazy heat and cold to the ears to like test your system. Basically like gave me nausea, which it turns out is like a or vertigo, 
um, mm-hmm. which is terrible. And if you've never experienced it, I hope you never experience it. And if you have, I hope you never experience it again because it's so intense. It's like blowing hot air into your ear for a minute to like distort your body's sense of balance so it feels like you're falling. It's terrible. But people experience that. Sometimes it's a side effect of concussions. So I got to see it. I was like, oh, it's really bad for a lot of people. Um, <clears throat> but for me, it was kind of like I began to see the filters that were applied to my sense apparatus. Whether it's light or movement or whatever. Um, and one of the things that actually worked for me was Eastern medicine. And it worked in a way that was consistent because I was like, it was like, my head is on fire, blah, blah, blah. You know, the Western guys are like, avoid anything that causes pain. Mm. And the Eastern guys were like, you've got too much chi in your head. Like, let's move it down to your root. Dungeon. And it worked. They were just like, relax your root. Just like, keep your attention there and just like, keep relaxing it. And it works. And I was like, whoa. Immediate results mm. that were consistently suggested by different practitioners. So there's this like repeatability thing, um, which is important, and effectiveness, which is a measure of truth. And so it was like, okay, like, what's going on here? And so I began to dive deep into like more esoteric yoga, like Kundalini and other energy practices, because it was like, this stuff is working, you know? And glutamine and all these hormones and chemicals and neurotransmitter, like GABA, like people, there's all kinds of stuff in the West, but it was all just like, try this pill and get a good night's sleep. Mm. And the magic I found in the Eastern medicine approach was how can we sleep without sleeping? Like, how can we enter that state of neuronal repair and peacefulness and rest and, like, recovery that we do while we're at bed without necessarily being in bed? I spent a lot of time in bed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But a big part of that was it was, like, how can I find that place of just surrender? Mm -hmm. You know? Do you think that, like, were these kind of, like, Eastern medicine techniques something that you would have imagined yourself being interested in trying before, um, you know, maybe maybe when you were younger, before you experienced these concussions, or was this kind of like a, did you feel like you had nowhere else to turn? I turned everywhere. (laughs) Like, uh, the desperate animal reaches for every foothold, you know? Like, I was trying, like, anything. And... One of the few things that really worked for me was actually body work to like calm the body in those first moments, those first days. Um, but your, your question reaches to like my predisposition to Eastern medicine. And I, I've been studying a variety of approaches from a young age because I grew up between cultures. I, for a long time, found myself just like questioning culture and studying cultures. Um, and so I was kind of open to all the different perspectives, but I definitely viewed specifically Eastern medicine as kind of woo-woo and like non-effective. I think that was the the suggestion is like, it's nice to feel good, but if you want like results, you know, you get surgery or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And it's cool because actually what like really worked for me the most, aside from like like a literal Eastern approach, which is, of course, one of those homogenizing phrases that means nothing, um, like to be touched by a human being in a loving way, just like to be held. Mm-hmm. And um, to be held by someone who could adapt the nervous system, like craniosacral therapy, Um, it was one class of body work that got me super curious in the ways that we could offer rest and healing and love to other people. Uh, And that's something that maybe I'd been open to before because I'd been getting like sports massages because I was like, 
I'm an athlete and I'm strong and I need this to recover and it feels good to be touched, but to be held with like a deep understanding of the meridian system. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, I mean, that's kind of what brought me here to Kauai, where I stay now. Because um, I, I was so overwhelmed by the system in San Francisco. And I had space to move. And I was considering what it is that I needed to live. And I was like, well, I need simple food, actually, and simple sleep, and just to be in nature. And, a simple loving community. I was really seeking simplicity. And one of the things that really worked for me was Lomi Lomi, or the traditional Hawaiian body work. And I became curious and studying more. And I've been studying body work and it's super cool. Um, and so there is a sense that my perspective has shifted after the concussion dramatically because I found it was like Google couldn't help me when I was, mm. you know? Yeah. Like I spent all of my 5% every day researching, you know, mm -hmm. and it just researching like the way that like a professional researcher could research. And it did not compare, like it, I, it just created more noise. But then to have like one person who studied like helping people for a while, like they could all consistently support me. And so it was like, well, I want to be able to like actually help people, <laughs> you know? Um, and um, so that's kind of the shift that has occurred since my injury was became more interested in how to help people heal. Um, and especially how movement can be medicine. <clears throat> so you've like, do you still do any... Have you completely shifted career paths? Do you still do any kind of like researchy, computer science -y stuff, or do you, do you feel like that's kind of? Um, I left Google in January. I've been unemployed. They were like they recruited me out of college. It was a big deal because I applied to like a hundred places and everyone said no. But then Google was like, "Hey, come!" I was like, "Yes, please, thank you." <laughs> um, and if you knew me, if you knew me at Swarthmore, it's not like I was like top CS student, you know? Like, um, I. I don't know. Um, I think I've valued joy over stress for a long time. And there's a lot of joy in building cool things, but sometimes the stress just is not worth it. Um, so I was never like the most serious student, you know, but like when I care about something and I want to research it, like so deep. Yeah. Like oh, so deep. Mm -hmm. um, and I think at Google for a long time, I felt like just the things I wanted to explore were not supported by the collective. There was like a real strong focus on a particular way of doing things. Um, and for a long time, I was like trying to share my inquiries and research and passion there and it just didn't receive. So I left and it's probably a really stupid decision in retrospect. Like, <laughs> you know, like all things considered, it's like the kind of folly that it takes tremendous privilege to attain. Like, <laughs> like it's only if you've had that job as your only job that you'd have the, the, the thought that leaving it would be yeah. wise. Um, Ironically, like getting, getting I left it in a, like privileged jobs gives you the privilege to then leave your job. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also the weird, like, I'm not sure what you call like the blind spots that emerge with privilege or maybe like the weaknesses, like the, mm -hmm. um, Like it kind of, it kind of fucked me up. Like it messed me up in a, in a bunch of ways um, to have that thing. Cause like I've left, I've not been able to find or like connect with work since then. I've been all year unemployed. Mm -hmm. And my savings like this, you know, like rapidly dwindling cause I don't know how to change my lifestyle. <laughs> and I've been trying to change my lifestyle. Um, but it's tough when you're also connected to certain like quality of life. Mm -hmm. um, to transition in a different way. Because um, for me, it's been like, well, 
where I'm at today is I'd like to share the gifts I've learned. Like I've gathered so many gifts in my lifetime because I've had access to great teachers because of the steady stream of income that I had. Um, and I'm in a place now where like working with computers feels like I just don't know many or really any like deeply meaningful computer projects today. Like it got to a point with like AI where it's like, what is actually going to help people? Like, are we, are we actually making life better in a true way for people or like so much stuff? It's like, like this is what really kind of broke the camel's back for me. Sorry. Um, with Google was, it was like, I was looking for like a different team. I was like, maybe that'll help, you know? And every team that I was reaching out to, it was like, oh, like this is going to be used for bad things. Or like, this could be used for bad things, you know? Like, or like, I don't know if this is like facial recognition technology. Like, do I actually trust that right now? Like, do I really want, like, do I trust the ethics behind this? And so it got to a point where it was like, I want to be doing like, I have the privilege of getting to choose at this time how I want to spend my time. And I want to be doing something that makes the world better. Um, not like contributing to a potential fascist project. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> I feel that very similarly because I, you know, I was also like in a very like, you know, high paying corporate job and I left because I'm trying to work on death care and helping people die better. Mm. And, you know, I've been, I, I tried to leave like three times and this is the time it actually stuck. And I, and I've been like trying to build a business around doing, you know, end of life doula and, you know, end of life planning and like that type of work. And for a while I was considering trying to get investment and all the people I spoke with, they're like, well, unless you want to make a platform that's like scalable that millions of people can use to help people with death care, you know, you're probably not going to get investment. And I'm like, yeah, well, I don't really think a platform is the thing that's going to help people like reconcile themselves with death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Oh, because death do is kind of the opposite of scale, huh? Oh, yeah. People do like one client at a time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's very antithetical in a lot of ways to what capitalism is encouraging us all to do. And so much of what I feel like I, I get very frustrated with in, in terms of like a lot of our peers is like, I feel like we all know such smart people who do have good intentions, who want to improve the world in some way. And I find so many of them wind up doing Hail Mary projects at Amazon. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean I, 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 I kind of get it is the craziest part. Right. I, I don't think I understood it before when I was in SF, but mm -hmm. in Hawaii, like I've become more understanding of the spectrum of decision-making that like, Okay, so I'm, my background, I'm a Palestinian person. Uh, my family was displaced, and it's still a big challenge to return to our ancestral homeland, which has become the home, uh, they call Tel Aviv, the beach of Yaffa, where my grandfather grew. And there's a huge, you know, refugee diaspora that I've connected with my whole life that I felt identified with. Mm -hmm. And so for me to come to Hawaii, part of the story was like, for a long time, the story has been like, how can we like actually post-colonial? Um, mm -hmm. Like, what is it to, to live in a integrated society um, that carries the wounds of property? And like stories of ownership that are totally foreign to a lot of places. Um, and so that's kind of the background that I came here with. And of course the situation is more complex. Right. Because it's like a very active colonization here, you know, like people are being displaced like today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? And people are moving here today. Like I'm a colonizer here. 
you know, I am here as part of the project. And a lot of the community that I'm here with, it's like they carry the, the weight of, like, to be a white person who is coming to, like, settle, you know. Hmm. And the thing that I've come to learn is everyone makes decisions that make sense for that. Like, from everyone's perspective, it's they're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And many of the people who are, like, Native, too, were also transplants who were, like, brought because a lot of people were brought here in various colonial enterprise, right? It's like for plantation work or this or that, and then you become a part of it. And so the thing that, sorry, I'm trying to say really is like, we're all trying to do things that make sense for us and our families. So it's tough. <laughs> it's tough, you know, because everybody right. wants the stability. Yeah. So when they go Hail Mary Amazon project, like, <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm not sure I blame them. Yeah. Either. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to, mm-hmm. you know, stare that kind of money in the face and say no to it. Well, also, like, it's such a, it's not, yeah, it's really not an individual problem. It's a systemic problem, but then, you know, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing because systems are made of people, right? Right. 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 It's kind of like exactly the, like, it's macro and micro. Yeah. And so it's like, how do we do, like, one person at a time shifting culture? And towards what? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. To like have the right. wisdom to like actually be moving our culture towards something better. Yeah. It's like for a long time I was, I carried belief systems that were, you could say like vaguely militant and then it turns into like, well, like where does that actually go? Right. Like, is that actually better? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know, to be honest. And I know that when I'm having fun, like everything is easy. And things just work out for myself and the people around me. So it's like, how do we have fun in sustainable ways? <laughs> um, like, can we have fun doing what we love in ways that help people? Mm-hmm. That's the eternal question, though, you know? <laughs> I think everyone, yeah. everyone wants to be able to do that. Yeah. But it's like... It is, I think, really interesting to like, you know, we at this point, we've had so many conversations like this, but like to see people on their journey developing a theory of change. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that is really cool. Like, which we're all engaged in kind of as a hive mind, as a generation collectively. I feel like, yeah, I'm very much in the middle of that, too. Like, not really knowing, you know, like where to. Oh, yeah. You know, like I just started. I mean, I just started at a, you know at a for-profit media company doing data science for them. And I used to do policy research, you know, and, but like, you know, you know the, cool. and then this, this org threw me, you know, they're like, here's a lot of money. And my two friends already work there. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, because like, you know, I, I, there's kind of this come to, you know, like I, I, it became really clear to me after, you know, not a long time working in policy research that like this isn't going to like you know affect the kind of change that i want to make in the world you know so it's like you know i think i would i would love to for my job to be the way that um i make the world a better place or whatever but you know i i don't you know i'm also like it doesn't have to be i can do things in my spare time you know, I feel like everyone's role in this is like kind of what they make it very, very different. So, I mean, like, I feel so disenchanted with macro change. I'm just like, you know, I kind of want to just do, I kind of just want to do community stuff. Now. And I can do community stuff um, outside of my job. So, I don't know. It's hard. But I'm also like, I'm also a big like subscriber to like effective altruism, you know? So, like, <laughs> it's like maybe I'll just, you know, like I'll do this and maybe I'll give like, you know, some percentage of my salary to uh, help with like malaria or tuberculosis, like the, the two easiest problems to solve. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> I hear it. Yeah. Um, I wonder, like, for me, it's like, what questions are we trying to solve? Mm-hmm. Um, 
and the most pressing question for me is sustainability. Yeah. Yeah. It's from like a macro perspective. So it's like, I want, if I want to solve that, I got to do it in a sustainable way. On the micro level, I think that's where the like, the effective altruism really shines. Yeah. Is it's like, I'm in a system that will support me. If I, you know, do something that, and that supports me and then I can support others. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, yeah. I'm noticing that for me, like something that I felt called to, at least in this conversation is felt like the real practice of like release and relaxing, like release actually, if you like step, like release, to like release again, to like create a new agreement. Mm. Hmm. is it i think a beautiful thing to like be able to pause and just like relax whatever tension we have in the body Mm, yeah very interesting way to to think about that word release there's a i don't i don't even remember his name but he's like a big tech guy who has this like meditation course like the waking up course you know who Mm -hmm. i'm talking about what is that guy's name? Sam Altman. Anyway, I don't know. Yeah, yes. Could, yeah, I think it is Sam Altman. Sam and Harris. Sam he, Harris. Yeah, there you go. Oh, Sam Harris. Yeah. Sam Harris. Yeah, yeah. And he always loved to say, "Begin again." Mm. At the end. Uh huh. You know. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the thing that's been most like as of so this year for me. So sorry, I, I, when I left Google, I was in Jordan because um, it took me like a year and a half to actually leave. I wanted to and I couldn't because I felt such like uh, uh, internal tension. Like, am I betraying my family? Am I letting down my ancestors? Mm-hmm. I like letting go of this like valuable thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it became this whole story of like angels. Anyway, I traveled to the Middle East where my family lives and I realized like none of them care about my work <laughs> at all. Yeah. Like they don't know what I do. <laughs> they have no idea. You know, they don't care. They just know that I'm working yeah. and that's what matters. Right. And it turns out, so it's like, and then so this year, I like I've lived in Jordan. I've spent time with the Bedouins in Petra, you know, mm-hmm. um, and the deserts of Wadi Um I've lived in Washington, D.C., like mm-hmm. 10 minutes from the White House walking. Like I've seen the like highest levels of all this like crazy shit. Um, I've lived in San Francisco. You know, where the world is moving so fast. And I've lived in Kauai, in kind of like deep country, where like there's people who were like, yeah, like we were just farming. And then all these trucks came, and now the houses cost a million dollars, if you're lucky. You know, mm-hmm. like in, the, in one lifetime. And so to have seen like, all these like spectrum of people, um, it's simple to me that they're all seeking the same thing a little bit, which is just mm-hmm. peace. And sometimes we search for peace in ways that are like totally non-peaceful. But like <laughs> yeah. what we all crave at the end of the day is just to sit with our family and like to not feel like we have to do anything. And sometimes mm-hmm. family is like my cat. Like I don't actually get along great with my Yeah, whoever your family is. Sam. So, yeah so it's like complex you know um but yeah so i think like techniques for relaxation are probably like the in my mind now at least the universal medicine Mm -hmm. but also it's really hard to relax when you're not doing anything (laughs) that's what i found yeah like i feel pressure all the time to go work yeah it's just weird dichotomy where like you feel like (laughs) you know you feel like if you're relaxing all the time then you're just getting feeling weird and guilty and bad, but if we're not working, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you have a job, it's so easy to relax. Like, right. Sometimes, exactly. It's know? like when they have unlimited <laughs> vacation and then you never take your vacation. Right. It's yeah. like not having mm-hmm. very specific, you know, boundaries that you can work within mm-hmm. or with, or outside of, mm-hmm. then you actually like you know kind of go counter yep. to the original goal yeah. entirely it's hard because right? like, <laughs> like i hate working right 
I really <laughs> have worked yeah. And I'm like the happiest I am by far is when I'm like, you know, like on vacation in a tropical place or like on the, on Nantucket for the week or whatever, you know, like just like having absolutely nothing to do. And that seems so at odds with, you know, like trying to do something that makes the world a better place. And I know it's like, it doesn't have to be, but it, do, it feels like it, right? It's like, like to me, this is the ultimate happiness. And I want everyone to be able to do this, but that's not the case, right? This is like, this is birth from such a place of privilege that I can do this, that I can like, you know, go to a, a, the beach for a week or whatever. Um, but it's like, if I, you know, the question is like, if I could do this all the time, would I? <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, you know? And like, is that kind of selfish? It's all hard. Mm-hmm. I really like the place that like, you know, we've landed in this particular conversation because it feels like a lot of the kind of paradoxes that we're having to deal with of like, you know, I, I feel very much like, you know, a lot of my friends who have really like, who have family who feel so invested in what their children are doing, like, you know, on the one hand, like that kind of hold is really, you know, to me, it's the fact that like my, my parents are, are really like, open and like pretty much don't care what I do that allows me to have that freedom. But it's like, what is the right level of like disinvestment that allows people to have the maximum control over, you know, their cause we're like, you know, there's all of these scarcities that we operate under. And I feel like so many people enter those jobs because of their scarcities of not things like money necessarily or privilege, but like their parents approval. Right. And you know, how do we operate in a space of finding the right balance of like, you know, like too much investment versus control, right? Because obviously if we're doing, you know, nothing, if we're just like hanging out, that's not going to further the, you know, these higher order goals that we have. But like also our our obsession with productivity is a distraction as well, right? Because we will never then be able to have the space and energy to devote ourselves. You know, if we're constantly like in this burnout mode, then we can't further those higher order goals either, right? So it's like, how have we f- figured out how to manage all of those paradoxes going on, right? Yeah. Well stated. As you were speaking, I got the, um, I guess the image of like, the things that we're avoiding, mm-hmm. you know? Um, And the awareness that sometimes we avoid those things for a reason, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that it like takes time to build the comfort, to be able to touch the release, like the wound, you know, mm-hmm. of parental approval or whatever. So, I mean, for me, when I got that job, it was like the first time my parents like relaxed, I think. Since I was mm-hmm. like four, probably. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, know? you know, like my whole life, for real, they were trying to fix me because just things were not mm-hmm. working. And um, like I was in and out of therapeutic programs my whole life. Um, they were trying interventions, whatever. And it's striking that when you flip the perspective to see that it was my willingness to question every system that made me valuable at Google. Mm-hmm. Like it was the radical, like not trusting authority that led the Google recruiter to notice me and reach out to me because I was like noticing mistakes in his email, you know, and telling him because mm-hmm. I had that, um, I guess kind of young awareness that um, not everything is as it could be <laughs> or should mm-hmm. be. Um, they say the gem is like the gift is hidden inside the shadow. And I wonder, because, you know, my one of the big struggles, I think, of our generation is that our parents experienced a different world than we've grown up expecting our children to inherit. Like, at least for me, there's not been a feeling that it's going to be okay if we just let things mm-hmm. go the way they've mm-hmm. been going. <laughs> there's a feeling like we have to change it or it's not okay, you know? Um, whereas I know for at least my family, it's like, we'd just like you to be stable, please. 
mm-hmm. just hold this like consistent. And I realize having now experienced great chaos and totally upheaved my life several times, um, just many times over the past two or three years. Um, like stability is awesome. <laughs> like, I would love, in theory, a job that I can clock in and out of, um, where I can just like contribute meaningfully to some people in a way that allows me to be free. Um, it's like I have a friend who's talking about how the real freedom is commitment. Like uh, hmm. for me, I was like, no commitment, that's freedom, and then it turns out too much freedom is just anxiety. Um, a friend shared it really nicely. He's like, anxiety is a dizziness of freedom, like too much freedom. Obviously, you get anxious because it's like, I could do anything. Yeah. Um, whereas if like you have a plan, even if you deviate from the plan, you know the plan's there. <laughs> so it's like you feel mm-hmm. safe. Yeah. That's a good point. I think that, um, I think a large part of like me coming in terms with my job now is like, like maybe this is the, Maybe this is the, like, you know, what you were talking about, like the thing that I can clock into and like, you know, it isn't my, it isn't my life's purpose. And like, maybe that's a plus, you know, because um, mm-hmm. it allows, allows me to be like maintain a level of disinvestment in it that I think is healthy. Um, and also mm-hmm. so far, I don't hate it. And I like the people that I work with. So like, I'm, you know, I think that like, you know, that with the that with the pay yeah. bump will hopefully and will certainly lead me to like feel like I have a higher mm-hmm. degree of freedom than I've had. Good, yeah, I love that for you and yeah. for all people. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. the question of disinvestment, you know, like yeah, because I heard the phrase non-attachment when you said that, um, and maybe that's where it's like the things we're closest to are the hardest. Like the passion project is the hardest to launch because it has to be perfect because you care so much. Every detail matters. Yeah. You know? But like for someone else's project, it's like, yeah, sure, poop, 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 poop. Like, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> like I'm going to make it really good because I'm good at it. But like I have so many personal stuff that I've just never launched. Mm-hmm. It's just to share it is like scary. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like that is something on a relational level, which is why I'm always kind of really interested in people who have had these stories like yours, where you are so like reliant on other people. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that's such a scary place to be in. Mm -hmm. Right. And it, it also like those are the people who I feel like the people who are closest to you are also the ones that are you kind of like can take for granted more easily or more easy to like fight with because things are higher stakes. Right. Because you are more invested in those people but like you can only reach a state of feeling rooted and grounded in like you know being able to know that people will be able to support you and care for you right if you know you get a concussion or if any you know bad thing might happen to you right um but that's like a really difficult state to be in to reach that level of stability right yeah I think that's what a lot of people fear in terms of having like sort of like I think we're in a phase of like very commitment phobic sort of like dating politics right now. And I think that's what a lot of people fear out of having that kind of mode, right, of always being this commitment phobic, you know. That's so interesting. Um, sorry, th- there's a couple of directions because the commitment phobic thing in dating feels like a, like a kind of mm-hmm. um, I've been thinking a lot about masculine, feminine dynamics recently because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. of just for a while um, I'll say something the concussion did for me was it really shifted my order of priority because mm-hmm. um, you know it was like I was having a hundred people at my house for a party before and then it turned into like there's like three people that I trust right now and yeah. actually the reason I trust them is because they understand me like, I think to this day, my family still doesn't really understand my concussion. Like, my parents mm-hmm. don't understand that, like, she was like, why, well, you have a brain injury? And I was like, <laughs> they, they call it TBI, you know, like traumatic brain injury. It's like, no, it's different. It's a concussion. Like, it's, and it, it's like, yes. And um, 
I think for me, I began to really favor tenderness and to really hold dear to me the people who are like able to hold me in my weakest and to like not lose respect for me just because right now, like I can't stand up, you know? Um, and to know that like, sometimes I'm still going to be the strongest person in the room, <laughs> you know? And to like hold both of those things. Um, I think just because for me, I'm very attached to that. I still hold pride for it. Notice I said it out loud. You know, there's like, I do care a lot about being able to be useful through my body um, and through my mind. And um, to have people who can hold the book, I think is really important. Um, in terms of relationships and that kind of commitment phobia, um, there is, I think, a masculine principle of play mm-hmm. and the feminine. I don't know, like, if we're, like, ready for that conversation or we want to have it. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I'm happy to share things that I've witnessed. And I'm curious to hear what you've witnessed, too. I mean, I'm just in a space where, you know, like, I have a close friend who you know, whose dad died recently, but before their dad died, they were like dating this person who they didn't really necessarily, like they were on the fence over whether they really could break up with this person. And a lot of their rationale was like, but what if my dad dies? How, like how, who's going to support me? Like, how is that? How, how could I get through that without having a partner, despite all of these other flaws I might have to deal with, you know? Yeah, I totally, okay, so I had a relationship when I got concussed, Mm -hmm. and that person is like the how I survived in the beginning, Mm -hmm. and then it became so codependent because they were exerting themselves to try to help me and then expecting me to exert myself in return, and it became this like, like I I didn't actually have energy to take care of them, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so we separate. And it became much easier um, and much harder, of course, because it turns out like at the end of the day, there's nothing better than to feel love. Um, even if the person's not in your space, just to know that there's like someone who might show up for you if you need that. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot imagine. Did they separate before or after they lost their parent? That's intense. Before. And it probably was harder in a lot of ways. Yeah, but you know? that's what would have, you know, what the result, what the result of the other way could have been. You know? Right. It's also a counterfactual pain and hard situations can, you know, it can create this like pressure chamber, like microcosm of toxicity between two people. You know? But at the same time, I also feel like when I have a partner, you know, because I, I went through a breakup like seven months ago. I also allow myself to indulge in feeling bad because I know that person can support me. Whereas when I'm single, I can be so much more independent. Like I don't even go there. Right. You know, emotionally. Beautiful. Okay. So cool. Okay. Now we're touching something that's super interesting for me. Um, (laughs) Or maybe just fresh. Like, so I think that we exist in the minds of others. Mm hmm as well as in our own conception. Um, And a non-trivial part of that for me is like helping to heal the perception of ourselves that exists in the other that we connect with. Mm -hmm. Uh, If that makes sense. Like, so like if you have a person who like, cause I have a friend that I get to be a whiny baby with, you know, and I've had people before, at least one person be like, well, if you didn't have that friend, would you still be a whiny baby? And, <laughs> yes. and I, you know, like, I don't know, because there is a sense that my relationship with them holds space for me to be like in paralysis because I've given them some quality of agency that they know better than me in some things. Um, 
I think we should be friends with our ex-partners if possible. I believe in staying on good terms with all people. I believe that. I think that um, <laughs> I wish I could be the kind of person that believes in being friends with exes, but in, just, in practice, it hasn't done hasn't been good for me. But I also I also uh, feel like I also feel like I didn't, you know, the only friendship or the only relationship that I've had that has felt like actually healthy is the one I'm in right now or the two that I'm in right now. So, um, you know, before this, you know, I, I think that you, you probably need to have like at least some degree of like a healthy communicative relationship with somebody to be able to stay friends with them in, um, after a breakout. And I haven't really had that with someone. So maybe, maybe if, if one of my partners <laughs> right now breaks up with me, I'll, uh, I'll be different. <laughs> 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 I mean, I am definitely a, I conceive of myself as a much stronger person and better person when I'm not in a relationship because I feel like I can be a whiny baby with my partners. And so <laughs> like, you know, like I do definitely experience that like, wow, you know, like I don't I and I know it's just like, you know, because I'm allowing myself to like be more vulnerable around those people. And when I don't have someone to be vulnerable around, I just don't, I decide not to, you know, do those things and like have, you know, you know, have those emotions in, in a more single state. But like, there's, yeah, like I, I, on the one hand, like, like theoretically understand the benefits of like, you know, having people that you can experience those like, you know, sad and negative emotions around, but then, you know, <laughs> there's also this masculinity complex, basically, right? Like what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> space to be soft, I think is important. And I guess the integration there is softness with someone who can be like, okay, that's enough now. Like we're going to hold a container for this softness for some period of time. And when we're done, like, we're going to do what we need to do because I trust you to do yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, I don't think I've had, I mean, since my concussion, I've not had, like, a successful relationship. And are you are you so, drawing, like, a, you feel like there's, like, a link between those things, basically? Yeah. Well, my first two relations, like, the relationship I was in grew codependent. Mm-hmm. And then I was like independent and single and healing and strong and taking care of myself and so good and journaling and had a great spiritual practice, like a personal practice. And then I got into a relationship and that became codependent. Mm-hmm. And I moved to Kauai and all of a sudden I was like without community. And then we broke up because it was hella codependent. And it was like, <laughs> and then I got involved in all kinds of chaos. And I was like, this is too chaotic. Um, and I don't know. And then I got older, mm-hmm. like I'm 30 now mm-hmm. and maybe it's the geography or the age shift, but all of a sudden it was like, started thinking about like, well, is this somebody I want to like raise children with? Like, and that's like a brain fuck a little bit. Cause it's just like, it's a brain fart actually. Cause it gets to a point where it's like, I cannot imagine that far in the future. Like we only actually have the present moment. Uh, mm-hmm. So when you start to think that the commitment stuff for me is kind of like, it's the mind judging negatively the present experience um, mm-hmm. or denying the body's experience. Uh, well, I feel like it's it's the, the present experience, but I feel like often the thing that for me makes any kind of like transgression or flaw that I see in the other person so much more of a big deal in a committed relationship is that it doesn't it's not just about this one incident it's about every incident that that's going to be in the future if you're actually planning out a vision of the future together with this person mm-hmm. which becomes like 10 times more of a big deal then right right yeah because I think um, as a female bodied person we have the story that we, like hold and receive mm-hmm. you know so I believe that women carry the burden of the no in our culture or in our biology, so Mm -hmm. to speak, in the sense of like, at least the male body person brings like, here's what we, like, here's the seed that will grow 
and the female body carries the like I will grow the seed <laughs> a little bit um, and of course it's more complex and like personality you know um, but but like I can understand why it's like there's like the discrimination to be like I don't want that mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. you know like I don't want my kids to talk like that <laughs> like get out of here yeah. <laughs> and it's tough because <laughs> we have this com- like abundance of choice today because mm-hmm. we live in cities you know in a way that's different because also we're older than I think most people connect at yeah it is it is a weird paradoxical thing because on the one hand as you get older I think there's this sort of like societal perception that's like well like you should have higher standards as you age right you shouldn't put up with the bullshit that you did as a you know younger person but also the literal pool you have to choose from becomes smaller and so like it's just also your operating environment that does feel more scarce and especially if you are somebody who is like trying to have children or something like people hit menopause in their 30s you know? And so then it becomes almost more of a desperate situation for a lot of the people I know who are trying to have children. Cannot imagine. Mm-hmm. I know that I feel like a big kid sometimes. Like, when I'm honest, I'm just like a big kid, just like fumbling around trying to play with people and like hoping they like me and want to play with me. And I think the way that I like to imagine relationship is somebody that I like to play with for a while, for a long time, likes to play with me, but also is capable of parallel play. AKA individuation. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm also super curious about all the like, I guess potential. Like, sorry, how do I reframe that? I've been blessed in my life to have like awesome partners up until the past three years. I've had really awesome friendships and connections and actually we can say partners since then, you know, but I just, like most of my life was like stable partnering, stable partnering, stable partnering. Um, I was like a serial monogamist. And one of the things I learned is that every one of my partners was a teacher too. Men and women, it's like always I connected with people who inspired me and became a part of my life, right? Um, Like I started running when I dated a track star, right? Or like a track person. Like I started to run and it became part of my life. Um, And I don't know, like, I think we each individually have this, like, how open are we to new experiences? And that becomes like a filter through which we judge the people that we connect with. Uh, I'd say that's been probably the biggest obstacle to me over the past few years. It's actually like judging the people that I'm connecting with. Uh, Mm. For whatever reason, like, just finding ways to be like, oh, like, they're different from me. Yeah, you know, Um, I don't know. It's it's like I personally feel pressure to build myself. I think that's something that like has become like this obstacle. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, I cannot connect with people because they don't like me because I'm not good enough right now. (laughs) You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't experience myself. I always. (laughs) It was the other person, but I know exactly. (laughs) I don't know why. You don't know why. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe you know why, (laughs) Um, But I mean, I do feel like I, I was just in a conversation recently where someone was like, yeah, like we always think that like we're actually better at relating than our parents generation was because we are so much more woke and we know so many more things about like the science of like, you know, emotional regulation, and things like that. But, you know, if you if you look around at people's like lived experiences, it does seem like there's a lot of like, you know, people out here very much like clinging to this individuality like you know i have a group of female friends for whom whenever i talk about you know a potential like male partner and mm-hmm. they do any they fuck up in any way they're like drop that guy you know like that's like the empowered thing to do yeah. you know what i mean it, yeah and so it is just like you know are we actually like going to be better off in the long run or did our parents generation actually have you know really stable long-term friends and partners partially because they weren't questioning and always trying yeah. to find these alternatives e- to the status there's an quo. equilibrium of, uh, of uh settling 
and advocating. Yeah. You know, there's some there's some equilibrium there, and it's probably not the same for each person. Um, but yeah, um, I mean, you know, I we like Isabel, you and I like have mutual friends that like you know purportedly have crazy high standards that um, you know like kind of kind of say it proudly, like I'm very picky. And are also like famously, yeah. you know, single and lonely or whatever. And single. <laughs> completely fine to yeah. be famous and single, but not but not fine if you right. claim that you want to be in a relationship really, really bad and you're always talking about it, but you're also incredibly picky. You know, it's like there's there's a there's an equilibrium of yeah. hey, somewhere here. Hey. Oh, are you feeling targeted? <laughs> yeah. Are you feeling attacked? Um, that's funny. Yeah, you know, I mean look, it's like <laughs> I think I, you know, I think that everyone, everyone, just would would, you know, including people in relationships, will just just benefit from you know like reflecting on like why you, if you, you know, where your standards are and why you feel like they're there. Um, because mm-hmm. I know that like Isabel, whenever Isabel, whenever we talk about like this person that we both have in the mind right now. You know, like the reason the, the incredibly high standards they have are all incredibly dumb. You know, they're all like stupid. Like, and yes, that, okay. No, Sorry. Yeah. So, because when you said standard the first time, um, the image I got was like the the royal standard, which is like actually a flag uh-huh. that you right. carry, right? Like the standards are like these. That's probably where the phrase came from. It's like you got to be this high to ride or yeah. whatever, you know. And mm-hmm. so it becomes like, what are you standing for? Um, yeah, and it's totally. What cool. is it a measure of? Yeah, right? yeah. So maybe that's okay to be like I'm actually like holding this um, seed for the right soil. Yeah, it's completely. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. everything is fine, right? That's the thing is like yeah. none of it's not okay, yeah. right? Like it's okay. everything, everything is, is fine. Morally it's just neutral, a matter really. of like it's just yeah. a matter of like how you know what are you willing to trade off to to get the you know, if if the end goal, and which I feel like it is for so many people, just like to have a partner, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, and it doesn't even have to be one person. Just like to have to be supported in community, but so often it's the only way for us to truly imagine that is via partnership and via the nuclear yeah. family or whatever, right? Um, you know, I think it's just always good to encourage people to be self-reflective on why you want on why you want the things you want. I find that I find that like. I don't know. I I don't know, Rosie, if you feel like this applies to you or not. But like, I find that people that have a really, really, really prescribed version or prescribed idea of the version that of the person that they want to be with, those people will have the hardest time. Because <laughs> like, they're looking, you know, they're looking for a somewhat <laughs> specific kind of person, and which is an, which is in, you know inevitably and almost by definition more difficult than having a not a not you know as thought out the image of the person that you want to be dating <laughs> yeah because actually i feel like the mental image i have of the partner that i want is like me but better or at least my like self-image mm-hmm. like times 1.5 or whatever factor makes it attainable but not like you know like because if they're too good then they're too yeah. good and, but like the actually like really supportive relationships have been more like there's been a polarity of sorts or like yeah. a difference you know that like i want to go train and build the body and they're like cultivating a like peaceful serene like meditative home space that i can like return and relax to um but then i feel super attracted to the like physical training partner who's like super acrobat can stand on one hand or whatever yeah. right and so like what actually like works better i don't know and i kind of leave it to god because yeah I've tried planning this stuff and yeah. look, <laughs> it's, like my cat. You know, it's not even my cat. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the neighbor's cat. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. It's hard, you know, yeah. for some people, I love you. For some, you know, some people really want like someone that really yeah. want and thrive with someone that like shares a lot of their hobbies and like things that they do. Some people, you know, it's completely cool if their partner doesn't like any of the shit they like is because they, you know, because then they can create more space to have individualism. You know, it's hard.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Rosie. Um, we forgot to record a second outro when we recorded this originally, so DeAndre is not here to do the outro. Um, but I will just say, um, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at I'm the Villain Pod, which is our Twitter, our Gmail, and our Instagram. Otherwise, bye.